0: I have a hard time seeing how these people can live with themselves, to be completely honest with you.
1: Today, on Public Trust, we return to French Island to learn how PFAS came to the island and what local residents are doing to secure their right to safe drinking water.
2: It doesn't matter where you live. In the United States, the federal government said this foam had to be used at airports.
0: We were under the premise of the whole time that it was harmless that we could wade through it and walk through it, and it would not hurt us.
2: We want the safe, long-term alternative, and we don't want to have to pay for it because we didn't create
1: the problem. I'm Rochelle Wilson, and this is Public Trust, a podcast from Midwest Environmental Advocates and Wisconsin Sea Grant. In episode one, we traveled to the town of Campbell, Wisconsin, which is on French Island. French Island is an island in the Mississippi River, right next to La Crosse. And we went there because the town has been without clean water for years, because of large-scale PFAS contamination.
2: I know the traffic's a killer. (laughs)
1: Lee Donahue, resident and town board member, was our tour guide. As we drove around French Island with Lee, we couldn't avoid running into the La Crosse Regional Airport.
2: And so you can just see how huge this airport property is. It's miles and miles.
1: The island is small. If you're driving from the very northern tip to the southern tip, it takes about nine minutes. And for five of those minutes, you'd be driving by the airport, which occupies much of the northern half of the island.
2: And this is going to kind of dump us toward where the 2001 plane crash was so right up the street from wow. from us.
1: The plane crash. It's one part of the PFAS story on French Island. So, well, come on in, ladies. Are we stepping this way? You, you While we were visiting Margie Walker and Jim Boyson, who live a few blocks south of the airport, they told us what they remember about the incident. At 20
2: years. 2001 was when the, accident, the plane accident
3: happened. Yeah, that's strange part of it is, is. I was on the phone talking to my son when it happened and I heard the plane crash and I told him he's lived up in Rapids and I said something bad just happened during the air show and I'm going to go out and find out. So I ran down the street and it was still burning. It was a, the guy took an antique plane and remade it and rebuilt it and everything else and one of the part of the tail fell off or something. It was terrible.
1: For decades, firefighting foams made from PFAS were used at the airport for routine training and to deal with emergency situations like plane crashes. The 2001 incident wasn't the first plane crash at the airport. Lee told us that there was an earlier crash in 1970 where AFFF firefighting foam was used. We also know the foam was used in burn pits where the fire department practiced fighting fires. Even as recently as 2020, the airport dealt with contamination in the form of A triple F leaking from one of their vehicles. All right, ladies. <laughs> Have <a good> day. <laughs> After saying goodbye to Jim and Margie, our next stop was to visit Mike and Penny Jorgensen.
2: Are we sitting close enough together? I think it's closer yeah, think to you. They
1: They've lived in their current house on French Island for 14 years. Like all other residents who live on French Island. They can't safely drink their tap water, and they rely on regular shipments of drinking water from Culligan.
2: You can tell when the Culligan water day is. Everybody has their bottles outside. So, I mean, you look up and down the street, and um, as far as we know, everybody, you know, is taking it as seriously as we are.
1: One of the reasons we wanted to talk to Penny's husband Mike is that he knows his way around the airport. So Mike, I hear that you were a firefighter in another life. <laughs> I
0: was. That, that was my real job okay. uh, for 34 years um, with La Crosse Fire Department.
1: Can you tell us what that was like?
0: Uh, it was, it's hard to describe in a way. I mean, it, you know, we usually went out the door when it was someone's worst day of their life. So it was gratifying to be able to help people. Um, you know, saw a lot of different types of emergency scenes and did a lot of different training for different things, so which kind of leads right into this whole thing.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, can you tell us about what, yeah, how, how were people trained? And you were around firefighting foam. What kinds of messaging did you get while you were working with that professionally?
0: Um, we did do training at the airport. The, the ground was unprotected. We would dump barrels of whatever we could get our hands on that would burn, and we would dump it on the ground, light it, and we would use the the foam to uh, train and practice and learn how to put out fires with the foam. The way it was explained to me from the older firefighters is that when this, when lacrosse first got set up to be able to use this under fire trucks, um, you know the chemical companies' uh, salespeople and that were in in town and said that this chemical or this product that we're using, AFFF aqueous film-forming foam was the same as dish soap. So that's what we were under the premise of the whole time, that it was harmless, that we could wade through it and walk through it, and it would not hurt us.
1: When did you find out that that wasn't the case?
0: I, I don't know. Probably 30 years, 20 years plus after. I think we started using it in the late, late 60s, early 70s. I started in 1977. And the fire department said so we had been using it, or they had been using it for a while.
1: Wow! And when did you find out about PFAS in this community here in French Island, in your well?
0: Um, well, when the when the news broke two years ago, two ish years ago, is when we found out that you know that it was had migrated, and you know, and we had our well tested, and sure enough, we've got it.
1: And how did that make you feel, being a firefighter? who worked with all that firefighting foam professionally, then finding out that maybe some of that exact same, you know, firefighting foam is part of what's contributed to the PFAS contamination in the place you ended up.
0: You know, it was a requirement that we use that foam and trained with it, required by the federal government for all airports to have it, use it, and train with it. So, you know, it was kind of our, out of our hands I I feel bad about it, but like I said, I was under the assumption for many, many years that it was harmless.
1: We spent hours talking to people on French Island who have felt the real effects of contamination from AFFF foam. So I thought, surely AFFF foam has been banned, right? I asked Tony Wilkin Gibbard about this. Tony's the executive director of Midwest Environmental Advocates.
4: There are proposals to ban the use of PFAS or certain PFAS compounds. Some states have taken that step to ban PFAS. The process of setting water quality standards is a difficult one. The process of trying to categorically ban the production or the use or the distribution of certain substances is even more difficult. The system we have in this country is that you produce something, put it out there and ask questions later and that's unfortunate. Some companies have voluntarily started to limit their use of PFAS and that's encouraging. When it comes to firefighting foam, my understanding is that foam still does contain PFAS and it's difficult to, to know because some of these products are proprietary and so it can be somewhat opaque what is contained in a particular product. In 2019, the state did put regulations in place about the use of PFAS containing firefighting foams in non-emergency situations. So for training and testing purposes, there are um, restrictions on containing that foam and disposing of it. But in an emergency situation, it is very likely or possible that the foam that's being used does still contain PFAS.
1: When it came to the chemicals he trained with as a firefighter, Mike had complete trust in the government. Now, years later, as he and his neighbors are dealing with polluted drinking water, well, let's just say Mike's trust in government isn't what it used to be.
0: It's been out here for a, a few years now that the PFAS is is for real. It's in the groundwater. I don't see anybody, you know, really super in a hurry to get clean drinking water for us on French Island. At least and I can only speak for us. Not that no one's working towards it, and there's a lot of people working behind the scenes, but, I mean, do the right thing here. Is, is the way I look at it, and I know what it is. It all boils down to money. It's gonna cost billions and trillions of dollars in just in this country alone to get people clean drinking water. And no one wants to own up to it.
1: I was really interested in the relationship between drinking water and trust in government. So I talked to Dr. Manny Teodoro, a professor of policy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who studies exactly that.
5: Water forms this remarkably intimate relationship between citizen and state. We're talking about a government service that comes directly into people's homes. I mean, it's either provided by a government or certainly regulated by a government. It's coming into your house 24 hours a day. You take it into your body it is a government service that people ingest. It's hard to imagine anything more intimate that the state provides to people.
1: For French Island residents like Jim and Margie, this is a deeply personal issue. But it's not just personal solutions they're after. They want to make sure everyone has access to clean, safe drinking water.
3: A disadvantage is a disadvantage. I don't give a shit how big your community is. Well, I drink the it. same water day to you. You know, so I I think it's got to be an all-inclusive thing. It can't just be the little communities getting more than the big communities or vice versa or anything. It's got to be all-inclusive.
1: I asked Manny to explain the relationship between drinking water and political participation. When are people like Mike and Jim most likely to engage with their elected officials?
5: Part of what gets people to participate in politics is a feeling that their own health, welfare, and happiness is at stake. So if I believe that government is important to make my life better, then I'm more likely to participate in politics. Otherwise, I am less likely to participate in politics.
3: More people gotta talk. More people gotta be informed. There's a lot of people that probably don't even know what PFAS is, never even heard of it.
1: I'll admit, I was one of those people. I first heard the term PFAS a few years ago but I dismissed it as a minor concern, distant from my own day-to-day life. I think a lot of people still feel that way, but people like Jim and Margie, Mike and Penny, and Lee Donahue, our French island tour guide, are working to change that. Not only are they telling their stories, they're actively engaged in finding solutions. Town of Campbell needs a
2: safe, sustainable, long-term water solution. We believe that we may
1: have found that solution. Lee said that nearby, the U.S. Geological Survey has a well that is drilled so deep it passes the contaminated aquifer and taps into water called the Mount Simon Aquifer. The USGS has been testing it for years, and they've never found PFAS contamination in that aquifer.
2: So we drilled a test well that's 500 feet deep, so we drilled through the contaminated layer with uh, what we call a cased, well, it's like a giant stainless steel straw, for lack of a better word. So nothing from this upper contaminated layer could push down or get dragged down through the rock, layers and layers and layers of rock, to this other aquifer. And we believe that this can be a safe source of water If this test well proves to be PFAS-free, it could be one of a series of wells that could be a municipal system. If you're a community that is small, you don't have the resources. To pay for a series of additional wells, we're going to have to go through bipartisan infrastructure law money. We may have to go through the Clean and Safe Drinking Water Revolving Fund. Tammy Baldwin's office was able to give us $1.6 million a year ago. This year we've applied for an additional $3.4 million through Congressman Van Orden's office. So we recognize it's going to take a lot of pieces of the puzzle to be able to afford a municipal system, but then also to rip up all the roads and lay the pipe to be able to pipe this to everybody's homes.
1: French Island residents like Lee are also engaging directly with government officials to advocate for new environmental health protections. One of the things they're asking for is a statewide groundwater quality standard for PFAS. While Wisconsin has a water quality standard that limits the level of PFAS in municipal drinking water, there's no equivalent standard for groundwater. That's a problem for residents in rural areas, who get their drinking water directly from private wells, where there's not a public utility testing or implementing treatment technology. Here's Tony Wilkin Gibbart, Executive Director of Midwest Environmental Advocates.
4: Groundwater standards are designed to ensure that we're limiting the continuing contamination of groundwater and that when there are exceedances that responsible parties will be forced to take action. In February of of 2022, the Natural Resources Board rejected the groundwater quality standard and that was highly contentious, it was highly political. As a general matter, every substance that has a drinking water standard has a groundwater standard. This was the only time that the Natural Resources Board wholesale rejected the recommendations of the Department of Health Services for those water quality standards. One of the Natural Resources Board members was actually on the board past the expiration of his term, and cast the deciding vote on that water quality standard. There were concerns about compliance costs, but lost in that conversation were the human health costs to Wisconsin families that are confronting the health effects of PFAS.
5: Okay, uh, Lee Donahue from Tom Campbell and Margaret Larson.
1: Lee recently traveled to Madison to testify before the state legislature about how PFAS contamination and the lack of a groundwater standard have impacted French Island, a community that is entirely dependent on private groundwater wells.
2: For Campbell residents and Peshtigo residents and so many others that live on private wells, it is a hardship and it's a health crisis. And I cringe to count all of my friends who have fought or succumb to cancer, and many other untreatable health conditions, and I stand here today on their behalf. My municipality has lived through this nightmare for nearly three years, and yet now we have hope. We have found a safe system.
1: You can hear water. the emotion in Lee's voice. Her fight for clean water is as personal as it is political. It's easy to understand why some residents are skeptical about Wisconsin's ability to deal with PFAS contamination. But Lee remains hopeful that her advocacy will make a difference for her community and for the future of environmental democracy in Wisconsin.
4: The idea of environmental democracy is that the government should respond to the concerns that we all have for a healthy and safe environment. And so when our Our values as a state and as a community demand clean water and demand a response to an emerging contaminant like PFAS that is a significant health concern. The government should have the power and the will and the ability to respond. As folks from French Island are getting involved in the process and making their demands heard, they certainly are exercising power. They certainly are making a difference. And we want to ensure that the state continues to have the means to respond to those demands as it has in the past, as it has in previous decades.
1: While PFAS are pervasive and the problem seems insurmountable, this is not the first time we've dealt with persistent contaminants as a society. I wondered, how have we regulated other contaminants? To help answer that question, I spoke to environmental scientist Rashmi Joglaker, who is currently based at the University of California, San Francisco.
6: PFAS, because of that carbon-fluorine bond, they're highly persistent. And there are many other what are often referred to as persistent organic pollutants or POPs that have had successful regulatory kind of outcomes. So, for example, a class of flame retardants, polybrominated diphenyl ethers or PBDEs, have been successfully regulated as persistent pollutants on the global scale, and some of them have been regulated nationally. Chemicals like dioxins, which are also highly persistent, have been regulated on the global scale and, you know, within the US. So we have seen certain success stories with other persistent pollutants, which, you know, that means that there is precedent to regulate persistent chemicals.
1: And so what are the kinds of things that people could be doing to effectively push for change?
6: You know, I think the first step is really raising awareness to a scale where everybody is informed about the dangers of these chemicals, about the widespread nature of the contamination. And then, you know, once awareness is raised, making sure that your congressional representatives are pushing for legislation that tightens regulations on PFAS. That kind of advocacy
1: is exactly what people like Lee have been doing. And many advocates are equally concerned about stopping the flow of PFAS at its source.
0: I've said for quite some time we're doing, as a society, we're doing an awesome job of killing ourselves. I mean, with the ozone, global warming, I mean, the PFAS, it it goes on and on and on. And we're gonna, we're making ourselves extinct by everything we're producing
2: will still love to live in Wisconsin will always love to live in Wisconsin but I would just like a little bit more to be done right now with getting us healthy clean water and
1: other consumable products this is Peter Davison from the last episode
4: it's so complicated um, and, and yet so simple like, you know that this Let's just be careful with what we're doing, especially now that now that we know what we've done. That's the part I think that's kind of the most baffling about this, it's like, you know, we got caught with our hand in the cookie jars, so we'll just take it out now, but nobody wants to do that. <laughs>
1: Next time on Public Trust, we traveled to Peshtigo, a small community in northeast Wisconsin, to learn how local residents there have been engaged in a multi-year David and Goliath battle with a major firefighting foam manufacturer that has polluted their water supply with PFAS.
6: There's a corporate playbook that they all know how to go by, but there's not a citizen playbook.
1: What are we doing to this planet? What are we leaving? We have to wake up. Public Trust is a podcast from Midwest Environmental Advocates and Wisconsin Sea Grant. This episode was produced by Bonnie Willison and me, Rochelle Wilson. Script editing by Peg Schaefer. Sound mixing by Bonnie Willison. Original music by Josh Wilson. Visual design by Ryan Staszewitz. Special thanks to Lee Donahue, Peter Davison, Jim Boyson, and Margie Walker, and Penny and Mike Jorgensen for sharing their stories.